Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you? Get in touch with technology with Tech Stuff from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello again, everyone, and welcome to Tech Stuff. My name is Chris Paulette, and I'm an editor at HowStuffWorks.com. Sitting across from me, as usual, is, wait for it, senior writer Jonathan Strickland. Ships at a distance have every man's wish on board. All right. Today we're going to talk about a boat. You're, are you doing that to goad me or the people writing in? What? Do, do, that it should be called a ship and yes, not a boat? Yes. Okay, wait. Before we get started, this is a personal pet peeve okay. of Jonathan Strickland. All right. In fact, I want there to be a special musical sting for personal pet peeve of Jonathan Strickland. <laughs> Make a note of it. Anyway, so uh, my personal pet peeve in this in today's episode uh, always involves um, uh, uh, things that are – very difficult to define mm-hmm. and that there are not specific parameters where a thing is categorized as one thing versus another thing. It's a ship. Now, here's an example, ship versus boat. So a ship technically is a vessel large enough to carry a boat and a boat is technically a vessel small enough to be carried upon a ship. I have a problem with this. There should be a specific size where a boat becomes a ship or a ship is degraded down to a boat. Also, mountain versus hill. What's up with that? Jonathan, a mountain is taller than a hill it. and a hill is smaller than a mountain. So this I'm, is my personal pet peeve. I'm pretty sure yeah. that the Titanic is large enough to be considered a ship. Okay, fine. So this boat even now was uh, made back in All right, so let, let's talk about let's talk about this. All right, so it's it's famous, right? Uh, obviously famous because of the the disaster, the sinking of the Titanic. I was expecting you to say because of that documentary on the Titanic. <laughs> there are many documentaries on Titanic. And well, some of them are actually documentaries. Well, yeah, and and the reason that it came up was because there uh, we just passed the 100th anniversary. Also, of- uh, Leonardo DiCaprio was in the office the other day. That's not true. The sinking of the Titanic, and, and there Kate, have been- Kate Winslet was oh. apologizing. For her performance, no, that's not true either. That's really sweet. So we we uh we have just passed the uh you know people talking about um the Titanic and and it's sort of romanticized in a way, not because of the movie, but because I, I guess because it was supposedly unsinkable because it was so immensely Titanic. Yeah, and it was and also it was also an era of romanticism. Like sure. we, you know, again, one of those things where you look back on a time and you romanticize it because you know it seems it seems this sort of uh, uh, ethereal time that we can only imagine now. Yeah, I mean, we can see the pictures in the film and everything, but still, it 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 feels like otherworldly mm-hmm. because it's not our experience. Yes, uh, the Titanic sank on April 14th, 1912. Mm-hmm. Now, it had 2,208 passengers and 899 officers and crew members aboard. Mm-hmm. Out of those, about 1,513 or so, uh, the records vary depending on sure who you ask, about 1,513 to 1,517 or somewhere thereabouts died. Mm-hmm. And in fact, there were only room for 1,176 passengers uh, in the lifeboats. Mm-hmm. They didn't have enough lifeboats for the entire crew and passenger list. Uh, and it's you know it's it's certainly one of the 
uh, most famous tragedies to happen in the travel industry. It's one of those things that is legendary, really. And uh, the legend has just grown over the years mm-hmm. since the, the sinking. Uh, a little bit other, more information about the people who died, just something that I thought was kind of interesting and tragic. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So uh, there were 329 first-class passengers mm-hmm. on the Titanic. 123 of them died. That's 37%. Of the actually all of them are dead now, but at the time, thirty-seven percent of the first-class passengers died. Right. Third-class passengers. There were uh, seven hundred and ten of them. Five hundred and twenty-seven of them died mm-hmm. in the sinking of the Titanic, which is about seventy-four percent of them. So thirty-seven percent first-class passengers. 74% third-class passengers perished in the sinking, yes. which has led to quite a bit of discussion about how the third-class passengers were treated and uh, and how preferential treatment was given to first-class passengers. Uh, and there are plenty of conflicting reports about crew members actually restraining third-class passengers from getting to the lifeboats until all the first-class passengers were taken care of, or as mm-hmm. many as possible. So... Lots of different reasons why this tragedy has lived on in our minds. But we wanted to talk a little bit about the technology aboard the Titanic, uh, the development of the Titanic, and also some technology that was developed as a result of the uh, – or at least pushed forward as a result of the Titanic sinking. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would say that uh, the Titanic is – the story of the Titanic is intertwined with technology. Yes. I mean it was the, – the ship was supposedly – Cutting edge. It had been theoretically designed to prevent something like this from happening. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, it had a lot of high tech equipment on board. Um, it also, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's equipment had some success. I would say that some of the systems did exactly what they were supposed to. They performed very, very well. Yeah. And other systems failed terribly, uh, leading to uh, ultimately to more passengers dying. And, um, you know, there are things like the number of lifeboats, which are not necessarily technological, uh, issues that were, you know, that were problems. And of course they were problems, yes. but, uh, we wanted to focus specifically on the technologies because, um, at the time the, the ship was designed to be, you know, top of the line. And in fact, right. it was, I believe the largest ship, uh, that had been built for pat, you know, for cruises at that time. It and its sister ships. Um, because there were two other, the Gigantic and the... Britannic? No, not the Britannic, which was originally called the Britannic. It was the, the Olympic? Oh, right, right, Or right, Olympia. Right. Maybe it was the Olympia. Yeah, the Britannic um, was a sister ship, but not... Yeah, so the... But, but those three ships, what happened was back in 1907, mm-hmm. there was a dinner meeting between J. Bruce Ismay, who mm-hmm. was the son of Thomas Ismay, uh, Ismay, who was the founder of the White Star Line Ocean liner mm-hmm. company. So these this was a company that was uh, managing and maintaining these huge ocean liners, which was the way to travel back then. Oh yeah. Uh, if you were going to go overseas. Uh, but the problem was that or perhaps the opportunity, I should say, the opportunity was there to create luxury liners that would improve passenger comfort and the idea was by providing this these comforts more people would want to travel and you would have a much more successful business because mm-hmm. the liners previously were pretty plain. You know, it just was, it was just a, you would get a very plain, uh, lodgings 
and you would be on board the ship for days and days trying to cross oceans. And it wasn't terribly luxurious or comfortable. So the idea was let's, let's change that. Let's make these luxury liners that can, can, uh, cater to the comfort of passengers. And so, uh, he had a, uh, Ismay had a dinner with a fellow named Lord Peary. Mm-hmm. And Lord Peary was the chairman of Harland and Wolf Shipbuilders. And the two of them started talking about a couple of liners that had recently launched, the Mauritania and the Lusitania. Mm-hmm. And both of these ships were larger, larger than any previous ones at that point and were known for their, uh, their amenities. Mm-hmm. And so Ismay was thinking, we could do that. Why don't we design some ships that can even put these behind? And, and make these seem primitive in comparison. And mm-hmm. the Titanic was one of the three ships designed to do such a thing. And it was, uh, at the time, uh, one of the, you know, one of the largest vessels on the ocean. It was 882 and a half feet long, 268 meters or so, almost 269 meters, uh, 92.5 feet wide, which is about 28 meters. And it weighed about 45,000 tons. So big ship, which meant a couple things. Mm-hmm. Uh, it meant one that maneuvering such a ship was challenging. Yes, because it was, it was so large that it was not the kind of ship that's going to stop on a dime or turn in a very tight radius. Uh, in order, to or change, even a quarter. Yeah, in order <laughs> half to, dollar. In order to change the course of this ship and to change its its speed. Uh, required quite a bit of leeway, which was one of the big problems that the Titanic encountered when it had its famous uh, tragedy on uh, a few days later after it launched. So uh, that was one uh, of the the main things about it was just its sheer size. It had uh, these enormous turbines that uh, were operated off of the exhaust steam. Mm-hmm. Um, the the there was these reciprocating engines aboard the Titanic, uh, two of them, that would create steam. The, the engines themselves were almost 40 feet tall. Mm-hmm. And uh, the steam would power these turbines that would turn these uh, three-blade propellers that were 23 and a half feet in diameter. It's about seven meters or so. And uh, uh, there was also a four-blade propeller that was 17 feet in diameter, or about five meters, that was located near the ship's rudder, which uh, helped the Titanic attain speeds close to 24 knots. Mm-hmm. So you've got this massive ship and the, this huge engine and these big uh, turbines and propellers to help move it through the water. And yes, it did not maneuver um, nimbly, right? Nimbly. It, nimbly. Uh, it was not a nimble type of vessel. It right. Was, it was very impressive, but not designed to, you know, do slalom courses unless they were miles wide. <laughs> yeah. And, and this is when technology, uh, plays a part too. Um, should we talk about the, uh, probably the most famous, uh, technological system? Uh, I've got a couple of ideas of what you could be talking about. Are you talking about Marconi's invention? Yes. Oh, I right, was yeah. talking about uh, uh, Bill Marconi's invention. <laughs> Bill? Yes. <laughs> Bill Marconi? Yeah. All right, fine. So, <laughs> Billy, uh, <laughs> where'd you get Bill from? I, I'd, I'd go with Gil Marconi. Gil? Uh, yeah. Anyway, Marconi, uh, of course, famous for um, 
not inventing the radio because Tesla did that. But uh, if you've heard, <laughs> well, of, he is famous for inventing the radio. He's famous for inventing the radio. But Whether, there are plenty of people who argue that Tesla did actually invented the radio. Right. That was me poking fun at Marconi. Uh, but Marconi, He'll play the Mamba. He he certainly he certainly made the radio a practical invention. Yes, as opposed to just a curiosity. Well, Marconi's thing was radio. Tesla was. You know, sort of busy with all kinds of different things. Yeah, he was he was a l- little less focused, but um, um, he did patent radio, and then Marconi got the patent overturned. Anyway, that's a different story we've talked about before in this podcast. So Marconi has this radio system that ships were starting to use at the time the Titanic launched. There were several ships that had radio systems, but they were still relatively new, and uh, they could only really transmit radio waves in short little bursts. So they were mm-hmm. perfect for things like Morse code, but they were not designed for voice transmission. Right, right. So uh Yeah, it was had, a um, it was a spark transmitter. Right. You had to have you had to have operators on board your ship who would be able to uh to take messages, convert them to Morse code and send them and as, as well as receive messages. And the Titanic had two operators. Which yes. was uh, unusual for a lot of ships. Many ships only had the one, and in fact, it was fairly common practice aboard these ships. For you know, at certain times of night, the operator would turn in, like they, it would be the end of the operator shift, and they'd go to bed, and there'd be no one manning the 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 radio at that time. That will prove to be important as well. So uh, there were the two who were aboard the Titanic were Harold Bride, who survived the ordeal, and Jack Phillips, who went down with the ship. Uh, and these two men were in charge of manning this radio and uh, monitoring messages that were coming in and sending messages that were going out. One of the problems that happened uh, that, that helped contribute to this tragedy, uh, a lot of people talk about how the Titanic received several reports, at least four reports from four different ships, about ice in the area directly ahead of where the Titanic was was going. Mm-hmm. And that if the Titanic had heeded these reports, perhaps they could have either altered the course or changed the speed, and maybe tragedy could have been averted. But here's the issue. Back here back at this time where people are using these these uh these uh transmitters, uh it all depended on how powerful your transmitter was, whether or not you would pick something up. You could overpower someone else's transmitter because mm-hmm. everyone's just essentially broadcasting full blast. Yeah. And there's no there's no fine tuning at this point. It's either on or it's off. Right. And there were a lot of people who wanted to send messages out from the Titanic because it was a very novel thing to do. Yeah. And there were a lot of people on the shores of the United States who wanted to send messages to the people aboard the Titanic. So the operators were constantly busy sending out messages. And in fact, at one point, uh, a message came in from, uh, from I think it was the California. Yes, the RMS Californian. Yeah, Californian, sorry. Um, and this was about 11 p.m., and uh, I won't bother uh, trying to affect a my poor version of a British accent, but it says, "Say, old man, we are stopped and surrounded by ice." And uh, the, say, old man, what about what's stopped and surrounded by ice? See now, now you've got the uh, both that and the uh, uh, early uh, early twentieth century movie. <laughs> I'm talking way too fast. It's a dirigible competition. Um, and about ten minutes later, um, the telegraph operator on. 
Titanic, and this just gets me, and it probably will you too, uh, when you hear it, mm-hmm. uh, the, the Titanic sends back, keep out, shut up, shut up, I am busy, I am working Cape Race, which is on the uh, coast of Canada. Yes, yeah, so what was going on was that the, the operator aboard the Titanic was communicating with Cape Race mm-hmm. and sending personal messages. Exactly. It was all these messages that were coming in and going out. Uh, from pass to and from passengers on the Titanic uh, and folks on the shore. So he, the the problem here is that for an operator to be able to hear these messages, now these, depending on the power of the transmitter, these radio messages could go a really long distance. Like the Titanic could broadcast 500 miles in the daytime and 2,000 miles at night. Yeah, and we've talked about this how. Uh, using shortwave radio, you can bounce radio waves off the ionosphere and make it go further. We talked about that in our numbers station podcast, remember? Mm-hmm. Well, that works best at night. Um, uh, the, during the daytime, the ionosphere just, it behaves differently than it does at night. So at night, the Titanic could broadcast these messages much further. And, uh, the problem is that in order to listen in for incoming messages, uh, you had to listen very carefully. Well, if another ship nearby was broadcasting, then that broadcast would overpower any incoming messages from the shore because the shore is much further away. The, the signal's weaker. Mm-hmm. So the signal from an in, uh, a nearby ship would be much louder. So the shut up, shut up part is really the operator saying, I have to turn my since the sensitivity of this all the way up so I could pick up messages. So when you talk, it's like someone shouting with a bullhorn right next to my ear. Yeah. So please shut up because I'm trying to listen to these messages. Now, if they had actually heeded that warning, sent that up to the bridge. Now, the, the, according to some reports, the bridge did receive a couple of different reports about ICE, but not all of them. So, mm-hmm. like, I think most of the reports I, I read suggest that two of the reports that came in never got to the bridge. Mm-hmm. And uh, although based upon the way that everything turned out, maybe it wouldn't have mattered anyway. Yeah. Because it seemed like a lot of the crew were fairly confident that, you know, they could maneuver through the ice without any problem, which as we see is not the case. Um, but yeah, uh, at least half of the, the messages did not get to the bridge anyway. So, mm. uh, the, the radio was very much state of the art at the time. Yeah. However, it was still so primitive. The fact that you couldn't just switch a channel. Yeah. And have a dedicated channel so that you didn't have to worry about overwriting someone else's messages. Uh, that was a problem. And, uh, and the fact that it, since it was such a novelty and everyone wanted to use it to communicate was a problem because it meant that the operator couldn't actually concentrate on really important information coming in. Mm-hmm. Another problem with the radio being, being so early is that they had different, um, different designations for I am in trouble. Yeah. Now, Officially, um, the one that we're probably most familiar with, um, SOS, had actually been adopted. No, it mostly had been adopted by uh, the German Navy. Well, the German Navy did that first. They did um, – well, the Marconi Company yeah. first uh, set up CQD yes. as its uh, – it's as, as it's, uh, distress call. Which is uh, what. Can I not say that any better? It's what, and that's what the Titanic was using, was C, CQD. Yeah, and basically that, that's actually, a, a homophonic French, um, for, uh, CQ being CQ, which is, uh, short for Securite, uh, basically meaning, um, you know, 
help, <laughs> and D being for distress. So basically saying, hey, I need help. I'm in distress. Yeah. Um, now, Germany, uh, that was in uh, February 1st, 1904. Now, a little bit more than a year later, on April 1st, 1905, uh, Germany said, no, we're going to go with SOS. It's three dots, three dashes, three dots. It's easy to say. Yeah, it's very easy to transmit, it's and it's very easy, easy to, to understand. Um, so and it, it had saved other ships. Right. In uh, June 10th, 1909, the Slavonia used SOS. Yeah, that's what SOS stands for, is save other ships. No. I know. Actually, it doesn't stand for anything. No, a lot of doesn't. people think it stands for save our ship. No, it, it, the, and the reason is just as Chris said. It's because the Morse code for it is uh, is very easy to transmit and detect. That's the only reason SOS is used as a uh, as an alert is because uh, once you hear it, you know, did it, did it, did it. Once you hear that, you got it. Yeah, it's pretty. It's pretty simple, and I think uh, a lot of people now know exactly what it means. As a matter of fact, somebody had it for their ringtone on their phone uh, <laughs> somewhere, and I'm going, "Does somebody actually? I mean, is someone in distress? Yeah. Uh, how many? How many uh, uh, movies has somebody been captured and you know locked in some cellar thing, and they start you know like ha- hammering on a pipe somewhere? Right. They get get they a place. They, they pull, pull out their keys and they just start tapping against the pipe. You know? And then MacGyver realizes that he's got a bottle cap, some bubble gum, and a knife, and he can turn that into a nuclear reactor. Yeah. If only he had a duct tape, he could have made a time machine. Oh, man, that would have been great. Anyway, yeah. So the problem here is that with the different the different uh, uh, codes for distress, not all ships understood what the Titanic was sending out. Once the Titanic did start sending out distress signals, some of the nearby ships didn't know to respond. And it wasn't until later in the night when they started to, the, the operators uh, decided to actually include SOS as well as uh, CQD. Mm-hmm. And um, there, I actually have a list of some of the messages that were sent out. I, I do as well. Um, yeah, so there, there's one at 12.15 a.m. Actually, before we do that, I should go through really quickly and just do a quick uh, time of events, like what happened when, mm-hmm. because then that'll give some context to these messages. Mm-hmm. So it was at 11.35 p.m. on April 13th. Uh, that they spotted the iceberg, where it was about a quarter of a mile ahead. Unfortunately, they would have needed at least... I thought it was the 14th. I had it down Four, the 14th. 14th is... Oh, you're right, you're right, you're right. The 15th is when it actually sunk. 14th yeah. was when it struck. I'm sorry, sorry April 14th. Uh, Chris is completely right. So April 14th, 11.35 p.m. is when uh, they spot the iceberg. It's a quarter mile ahead now. Unfortunately, they would have needed a half mile to actually stop the ship or move around it. Mm-hmm. So the best they could do is kind of skirt the edge of the iceberg. But here's the thing about icebergs. The part you see up on top is just a tiny fraction of the iceberg. There's a whole lot of iceberg underneath the waters, uh, the water line. Mm-hmm. And uh, the problem was that part of this underwater section of the iceberg jutted out and the and it scraped the side of the Titanic. It actually made six gashes yeah. in the Titanic's hull, which it, and we'll talk about why that happened too. Yeah, it wasn't a head-on collision. No, no, it hit it hit just one side of the the Titanic, but that was enough to to cause it the problem. So, so at eleven thirty-five they spot the iceberg. Eleven forty, so just five minutes later, that's when the Titanic scrapes against the iceberg, uh, and then by midnight. The watertight compartments, of which there were sixteen mm-hmm. uh, in the uh, within the Titanic, they start to fill up. Now, six of them, five or six, depending on who you ask, uh, were filling up with water. Uh, originally, the shipbuilders said that the Titanic 
would be perfectly fine if three of those watertight compartments flooded. It would still be able to sail as if there were no problems. And it could continue with four of them flooded, but it would have some problems. But with five or six flooded, it was just a matter of time before the Titanic would sink. And I'll go into more about that in a little bit too. So at 1.20 in the morning, the bow of the uh, of the the Titanic begins to pitch into the water. So the weight from the water coming into those watertight con- uh, containment areas is making the ship tilt. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's actually causing more problems with flooding. Then at 2 a.m., the bow starts to submerge and the propellers actually lift out of the water mm-hmm. because of the, the weight from the water in the, in the bow end of the ship. Wouldn't that be the screws? Just saying. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Technically, yes. At two ten, the Titanic <laughs> starts to tilt about forty five degrees, and the steel structure that underlies the ship starts to give way because the weight of the the end lifted out of the water is yeah. too much for it. At two twelve, the stern raises up out of the water, and the bow completely fills with water and starts to grow heavier. At two eighteen, the bow rips loose. So the bow starts to sink into the ocean. The stern, meanwhile, rises up almost completely vertical because uh, it has lots of air still within it. Yeah. So the stern is is free of the bow. The bow is now sinking into the ocean. Um, and then uh, the stern starts to sink at 2.20 in the morning. And at 2.29, uh, the bow hits the ocean floor. Mm-hmm. At 2.56 – the stern hits the ocean floor and the stern is in really bad shape because it had so much air inside of it while it was sinking. Uh, there were implosions mm-hmm. within the ship itself because uh, the pressure that was building up just ended up uh, the pressure from outside the ship and the air pressure inside the ship created this situation where uh, because it wasn't truly flooded like the bow was, mm-hmm. um, you had these implosions, and which is why if you ever see any of the documentaries where there are submarines that are exploring the ship, mm-hmm. the stern looks destroyed. The bow looks almost preserved, and the stern does not. And that's why. So with that in mind, looking at some of the um, the, the messages that were sent out. So at 1140, you have the, the collision. At 1215 in the morning on April 15th, because we've just passed midnight, uh, the Titanic sends out a message to any ship that says CQD Titanic and gives the coordinates. Mm-hmm. And uh, then at 1217, uh, just two minutes later, that's when they write CQD, CQD, SOS Titanic gives the position, require immediate assistance, come at once, we struck an iceberg, sinking. Mm-hmm. Um, and at uh, twelve twenty a.m., they messaged specifically to the Carpathia. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, they uh, uh, a couple ships responded. Yep, uh, pretty much right away. Um, the Frankfurt uh, and the Olympic, the sister ship of the, uh, yep. the Titanic, um, were, were uh, quite a distance away. Unfortunately, yep. Yep. Um, the Frankfurt was about 170 miles or so away and the Olympic was almost 500 miles away. But here again, this high tech transmitter that the Marconi company had on there, they were able to there were a lot of ships that were aware of what was was going on, yeah, now, just, whether or not they could make it there in time to save people. Right. Um, yeah. Thankfully, the Carpathia was somewhat close, although the Californian was the closest, was the closest. But here's the issue is that after the Californian operator received the message saying, shut up, the Californian operator decided it's time to go to bed. I'm not paid enough to put up with this and 
they and closed down shop and went to bed. And that's like we said, that was that was regular practice on yeah. board ships. Is that after you each the end of your shift, you 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 closed down, you turned off the radio, and you caught some sleep. So that's exactly what the operator of the Californian did. If the operator had stayed on, then the Californian could have responded much more quickly, potentially anyway, than the Carpathia did, and probably would have saved. Some of you know some of the some of the people who, who died there, yeah. would have likely have been rescued had the had the Californian been able to respond in time. However, um, you know I, I think well never mind that that was one of the things that kind of got me you know sort of a uh, gut wrenching feeling when the uh, operator told him to shut up. <laughs> yeah, so, the, the at twelve twelve twenty five in the help. at twelve twenty five in the morning the Carpathia sends a message to the Titanic saying, "Shall I tell my captain? Do you require assistance?" And a minute later, Titanic responds with, yes, come quick. And then at 12.32, so six minutes after that, uh, the Carpathia message is putting about and heading for you. So at that point, the Carpathia does start to make its way toward the Titanic. Um, and uh, and the, the messages continued from the, the uh, Titanic, and, and they get pretty – it's pretty rough. Uh, SOS, Titanic sinking by the head. We are about all down sinking it was at 12.40 in the morning. Um, and then at uh, – uh, They kept uh, sending messages as, as fast as they could, yeah. hoping that somebody else might be close enough and they might right. tune in and uh, and come help. Which is why they kept on switching between CQD and SOS. And uh, yeah, it, it, it continued all the way up to the ship actually – Sinking. I mean, uh, the last. Let's see, let's see if I've got the very last message here. I think the very last one is uh, right at around between between two fifteen a.m. and two twenty-five a.m. So mm-hmm. this is right about when the ship itself was going under. Mm-hmm. Um, and it said that the last message was SOS, SOS, CQD, CQD, Titanic. We are sinking fast. Passengers are being put into boats. Titanic. And that was the last message. And uh, as I said, Bride. Um, escaped. He he survived, but mm-hmm. Phillips went down with the ship. He was supposedly signaling all the way up until the very end. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in fact, I read one report that said that uh, Bride had said when he came in to check on Phillips to try and tell him to leave, Phillips was still there sending out messages frantically and listening for messages while another passenger or a crew member was trying to remove Phillips. Uh, Life vest. Yes, and that Phillips was just letting it happen because he was st- stuck, you know, staying at his post, mm-hmm. uh, which shows a level of dedication that that I think borders on the fanatic. Um, and it also is interesting in that I remember I read a, an interview with a guy who specifically said that in this day, Phillips and Bride could be considered the computer nerds. Yeah. Of, of that era. Like these were guys who were absolutely obsessed with radio and they loved it and they lived it and that this was just something that they found engrossing and fascinating. And that kind of, I can kind of understand that. I've, I've met some, uh, computer nerds and I say that term with all affection <laughs> who I think you would have to use a crowbar to separate them from their computer. So it's a very similar situation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Let's, let's talk a bit about some of the reasons why the Titanic did sink, uh, the, the damage to the hull, um, didn't look as severe as what you might imagine something, you know, like a, a hole being large enough to sink a ship like the Titanic. But mm-hmm. part of the problem is that 
these gashes that hit along the side of the hull, uh, some of them were quite long and and bridged more than one watertight compartment. Yeah, and, and there were there were a lot of things going on here. Um, part of a, a good bit of it was apparently human error. Yeah, I mean not just in in um, making mistakes like. Uh, you know, Ignore. civil mistakes, right. not ignoring the messages, um, not, you know, overconfidence in the uh, uh, ship's ability to take on an iceberg. Right. But uh, but also, you know, the way they um, – from what I understand, they left some of the watertight compartments open, which allowed water to pass from one to another. And, you know, there were apparently some mistakes in constructing the ship too. Yeah. Um, the the steel apparently was particularly brittle. Yeah, uh, there's a um, and of course I'm sure that the cold water didn't help anything. That's because. actually yeah, that's actually a real problem. The so the the steel was semi kilned low carbon steel, mm-hmm. and uh, mm, the carbon. the process the process of of making the steel uh, introduced some sulfur. Mm-hmm. Into the mix and steel with a high sulfur content that is put to low temperatures and experiences a high velocity impact tends to be brittle. Mm-hmm. Now, normally, the way steel would react if you had created, you know, a very strong steel mix, uh, it would normally deform, mm-hmm. so it bends, right? So, I mean, we've all seen steel that's been dented. Sure. So every time I go shopping and look at the cars in the parking lot, there you go. So there, you know, and that's just the ones that he he hits. Um, the uh, yeah, but steel tends to bend; it deforms first before right. it breaks. Now, when it's brittle, it'll break rather than deform, and so the uh, that's a bad thing. You know, yes. if it deforms, it can it can hold on to its uh, integrity a little bit better than it could if it just shears away. So there are plenty of pictures online where you can see steel bars that were. Um, that have high sulfur content versus ones that don't that are subjected to uh, to temperatures that the Titanic would have been subjected to at that time and hit with a high velocity weight and regular steel bends and the steel that was the same sort of, uh, of uh, composite as that the, that that was used in the Titanic breaks in half like there's no there's no bending it just it just shatters. Mm-hmm. So that was part of the problem was that the steel just shattered rather than bent in. And so water was able to come in uh, without problem. Another issue was that these watertight compartments, they had watertight doors that could drop automatically or manually. Mm-hmm. And they did seal those. But the issue there is that the watertight compartments only went so far up. They went above where the water line is. Mm-hmm. All right. So you've got uh, the water line on the ship. Anything that's above that water line the the walls stopped so there was a gap there in these quote unquote watertight compartments mm-hmm. well when these six compartments or five or six compartments started to take on water uh it made the ship start to list mm-hmm. it started to, to to move to one side as we mentioned earlier the bow was starting to go under and once that happened uh the water started to make the ship tilt and as it was tilting the the water could flow over parts of these these uh, these walls mm-hmm. because the, the ship was no longer upright. So that meant that water could start spreading into other unaffected watertight compartments, quote unquote watertight compartments, uh, because uh, the since the walls didn't go all the way up. So you had water rushing into 
otherwise safe compartments, and it just made the problem worse. In fact, I've seen some reports that suggest that perhaps if the Titanic didn't have all those watertight compartments, uh, and instead the water was free to just flow across the entire uh, underwater surface of the boat, the ship still would have sunk, but it would have sunk in a in a less um, in a more controlled manner. In a more controlled manner, it would have taken more. It would have taken longer, so rescue ships would have had more time to get there. Perhaps rescuing many more people, and it wouldn't have uh, necessarily pitched over and broken in half mm-hmm. like it actually did. So it would have just just started to lose buoyancy and continue to sink, which would have been much better news for everyone involved, obviously. Um, so, so part of the issue we have here is a system that was designed to help prevent sinking actually contributing to sinking, right. potentially anyway. This is all based upon uh, a lot of after-the-fact supposition, right? Mm-hmm. Sure. Um, and then, uh, you know, the the other issues involved are the fact that they didn't have enough lifeboats aboard, and part of that was that the the ship was so new. That mm-hmm. there wasn't a designation for how many lifeboats it should have. Uh, most reports I say see say that it had 16 lifeboats aboard. That it, there were actually more than that, but the, the 16 lifeboats were the ones that were ready to go because uh, they 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 were supposed to have two rows of these lifeboats, but one row was removed for aesthetic reasons. Mm-hmm. So well, I mean, it was uh, hey, you know, it was unsinkable, right? There wasn't any reason to have lifeboats. Well, yeah, and. Uh, the 16 lifeboats were, um, that was, that was the bare minimum for a ship of 10,000 tons, mm-hmm. as dictated by, uh, by an authorization council. But the problem was that the Titanic was larger than that, but the, 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 uh, regulations hadn't caught up to the innovation. Right. The 10,000 tons was as big as it got in the yeah. regulations. So there was no, uh, there was no correcting for the fact that Titanic was actually larger than what the top level was in these regulations. So it right. had the bare minimum. Um, so that was also another issue. There were pretty much everything that could go wrong. I, I guess not everything that could go wrong did go wrong because people did survive, which is good. Yeah, and that, that radio system kept on going um, as long as the uh, the telegraph operators were able to power it. Um, but that was the apartment one, uh, the problem that once, uh, the water began flooding, um, the areas of the ship that provided power, the turbines, yeah. um, then the, the, uh, system started losing power. The, se- yep. the signal was much less effective. And you, um, there are reports too of, of communications between other ships where they're explaining, you know, hey, this is what's going on. The Titanic's going down. We need to get over there. Who needs help? You know, Messages back and forth to explain, and you start to get uh, in the early hours of the fifteenth. You start to see things like, well, we haven't heard from them since you know such and such time. We haven't heard from them since midnight. We haven't heard from them, even though they broadcast since then. The power was going down. Their signal uh, strength was waning um, until the the, uh, the power went out. So um, you know they the, that system worked very very well. Yeah. Um, but uh, of course after. Uh, you know, this tragedy, they started trying to find ways to prevent it from happening again. Mm-hmm. Um, in 1912, July 5th, um, the International Radio Telegraph Convention, and they had, they had confirmed SOS as the distress call roughly about the time the Germans had, but again, you know, not everyone had adopted it. Right. Um, 
And, uh, you know, obviously the, t- the Titanic's operators knew about it, but they were sticking with the Marconi CQD. Yeah, they, they'd alternate back and forth going for whatever would help. But they, uh, yeah, they signed uh, the order in London on July 5th, 1912, uh, again, formally adopting SOS as the International Maritime Distress Signal, mm-hmm. um, which was supposed to take effect in 1913. Um, the United States uh, had their own radio act that was passed in August 13th, 1912. Um, and they basically started countries began working together to prevent another tragedy like this. They, they convened a, an international convention for the safety of life at sea, um, designed to agree on standards to use. They started using May Day as the uh, spoken distress call once right. uh, radio communications were given by voice over radio in, on November 25th, 1927. And they started using 500 kilohertz as the new frequency. Yes. So it was a dedicated frequency for distress signals, which, again, this helps out substantially because you can send person to person, you know, hey, having a lovely time. Hey, look at the iceberg. I say, old man. Yeah, exactly. You can have that on one channel. Is, is capital. <laughs> capital. And then, you know, hey, I need help mayday on 500 kilohertz. Right. Um, they began to change that as time went on, too. But they would, you know, the Titanic really galvanized um Maritime uh, distress procedures, yes. much more than they had been before. It was all, it was a new technology back yep. in, the, in these days, and so they said, you know, hey, we can use this to our advantage. Let's agree on something we can all, you know, use together. And eventually, by by uh, 1948, regulations were in place that required ships exceeding 1,600 tons. They must have a wireless apparatus on them. Yes, and part of that was. So that they could respond to, to distress calls, not just be able to make them, but respond to them or relay them. Yeah. Because again, depending upon the ship's position and, um, uh, and its, and its own ability to transmit, uh, those, those signals might not go to the best, you know, the, the, the potential rescuers. So, uh, yeah. And then you had ships also employing more operators yeah. so that they could have a continual, a continual shift of operators so that you didn't have times when the, the station was unmanned. That and, and you didn't have the, the likelihood that, uh, your telegraph operators are worn out. Yes. Um, it was suggested in one of the passages I read that, uh, the Titanic's radio, two radio operators were so busy sending personal messages that, um, by the time the accident happened and they hit the iceberg that uh, they were both pretty worn out. Yeah, they're working on exhaustion. And, and, and frankly, that might have been part of the reason behind the shut up. Yes. Because he was, I, look, I'm trying to send messages here. Get out of my way. I got to do this so I can go to bed. Definitely. That and, might have played a part. And we also saw developments in things like sonar. Uh, actually, yeah. sonar was in the experimental stages when yeah. the Titanic launched. It did exist, but the Titanic wasn't equipped with it, right. nor did it have radar, which right. probably could have, I, I assume, could have, um, or at least these days, can detect the top of an iceberg. Yeah. So, uh, so those those innovations began. Uh, there was a lot more focus put toward them in order to uh, employ them in things like cruise travel and just travel in general. So that uh, ships could be much more safe. Um, it wouldn't be until the 1970s, the late 1970s, that we would develop a technology sufficient to let us actually explore for the Titanic. Mm-hmm. Uh, we knew generally where it went down, but there, the, it was in very deep water, 12,500 feet, if I remember correctly. Mm. 
Pretty, pretty pretty deep. That's very deep. Yeah. So it wasn't until the late 1970s that uh, that people began to develop the technology that would be capable of diving down to that depth and getting information. Uh, one of the first was a, a Texas oil magnate named Jack Grimm. Hmm. And Grimm uh, really poured a whole lot of money into launching some expeditions to try and find the Titanic in 1980, 1981, 1983. Uh, but because of some bad weather, some equipment problems, and uh, just you know trying to find these two pieces of a giant ship in an enormous ocean, they were unsuccessful. It wouldn't be until a few years later. It was on September 1st, 1985, that the very first video image of the Titanic was captured um, by, an, uh, by a submarine. And uh, uh, since then, we have had several uh, expeditions down to the Titanic, mm-hmm. some of which have retrieved things from the Titanic and brought them back up. Uh, a lot of different pictures were taken. Um, and, uh, and in fact, uh, James Cameron... And of course, the director of the documentary Titanic uh, ended up. <laughs> the, uh, <laughs> we you you should clarify that because okay. we did James talk Cameron, about the, the docu the director of a film called Titanic, which was not a documentary, also did a documentary about the Titanic. Um, or he he, ca- he, he captured a lot See? of yeah, I know that's why I did, went ahead and I broke my joke for the purposes of this one podcast. Um, Yes, so he he actually did do quite a bit of this research. Uh, he was involved in it pretty heavily, mm-hmm. and um, and of course Cameron has continued his fascination with the deep sea. He's since gone down deeper than any other person in the world, uh, which is pretty darn fascinating. Down in the trenches. Yep, down in the trenches. No, really. Yeah, really. Uh, so yeah, I mean, this was. It's a story that still fascinates. Today, a hundred years later, and if sure. if you're ever in a city that has uh, a Titanic uh, museum exhibition, there was a traveling one a few years ago uh, that was going from one museum to the next. I've actually seen it a couple of times, and uh, and it is really interesting to kind of get a look at what not just the the problems that the Titanic faced, but what life was actually like aboard the ship, what the first-class passengers, what their experience was, as opposed to the third-class passengers down in steerage. I mean, the the difference is night and day. They had Turkish baths on board the Titanic. It was an amazing vessel. It was phenomenal. And, and, uh, and meanwhile, they have Turkish baths for the first-class passengers. They had two bathtubs for steerage. Yeah. Um... Oh, just to to go into the uh, the technology developments too. Uh, a lot of what they developed in the early and mid twentieth century in the in the uh, follow up to the Titanic disaster stayed in place for a long time. Uh-huh. The mid seventies saw the beginning of a uh, telecommunications network specifically uh, designed for uh, sea vessels, seagoing vessels, mm-hmm. um, satellite network called Inmarsat. Um, and uh, as a matter of fact, um, the first satellites started working in 1982, um, and they started changing the uh, the frequencies. Now, uh, 156.525 megahertz, um, and there is a satellite emergency position beacon that works at 406 megahertz or 1.6 gigahertz. Now, of course, um, that was in effect when the uh, Costa Concordia hit a reef off uh, off the um, coast of Italy um, that probably you're aware of that happened uh, earlier the year we're recording this on January 13th 2012 
Um, and I think it kind of, it's, it's ironic for two reasons. One, um, it does sort of underscore the fact that, uh, you know, these measures are still very, very necessary. And, uh, you know, the fact that it was a very large, um, ocean liner with pass, you know, passenger liner that, uh, uh, ripped a big gash in the side of the hull, um, traveling in this case, not an iceberg, but rocks. Um, and, uh, you know, they were moving with, Emergency power. Thankfully, most of the people got off that ship mm-hmm. okay. Um, but uh, apparently, there were not any distress calls sent through the Global Maritime Distress and Safety System (GMDSS) mm-hmm. to let to let the uh, Italian Coast Guard know. Um, so that would have probably helped. Yeah. Yep. So I mean, obviously, there's some. We could put as many systems as we like in place unless people actually uh, follow them and well, and, 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 and uh, uh, activate them. It well, doesn't really help. From what I've read, it was passengers calling the Coast Guard on their cell phones that let them yeah. know that something was awry. Yeah, that's that's not good. No. Nope. Oh, and um, before – this will be a, a nice little way to finish this. <clears throat> okay. So back in uh, 1912 when the, the ship was, was built – the cost was about seven and a half million dollars. Wow! So today, that would cost a hundred and sixty-seven million dollars. That is uh, quite a princely sum. It is a princely sum. It was also really expensive to uh, to travel aboard it. I yes. remember that the a first class ticket would be the equivalent of around seventy grand today. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And uh, you it's know, a lot of money to go across the ocean. Yes, it is. And uh, to think about. Um, you know, I think too the the other reasons, um, you know, for the Titanic going down in history. Sorry, no pun intended. Um, don't want to make light of that. Uh, that were you know the famous passengers who were on board, uh, some of whom died, some of whom didn't, uh, or the people who didn't go. You hear about the famous people who didn't make it. You know, people who went on to do, you know, things that have gone down in history. Uh, like would that have happened? Right. Um, you know, that's its first voyage. The fact that it was supposed to have been unsinkable. You know, all these things tied together. But it's it certainly spawned made it... at least two musicals. Yes. The unsinkable Molly Brown and Titanic. Yep. Um, yeah, it's just it captured a place in our imagination and in our technology. So it's, uh, you know, it played an important part in our lives. Yep. So, guys, if you have any suggestions for future topics. Perhaps of things that happened in the past, let us know. Send us an email. Our email address is textup at discovery.com or let us know on Facebook or Twitter. Our handle there is textup HSW. And Chris and I will talk to you again really soon. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you?